1: plushcare.com slash weight loss
2: Welcome to the latest edition of the Football Writer's Podcast featuring me, Mike Calvin John Cross of The Daily Mirror and Glenn Moore of World Soccer Magazine We've got the Champions League on speed dial this season There's barely time to draw breath as the fixtures come thick and fast we will get a better idea of the balance of power after this week. Bayern, at the moment, look favourites. The Spanish giants, Barcelona and both Madrid clubs, look to be a little off the pace. What are the English challenge? It's early days, of course, John. But who's best place to go deep or even win it? Well, I would say from the English
1: point of view, Liverpool are in a great position, aren't they? I mean, on the back of a huge victory, I think, away from home at Ajax, when I think actually they played better than perhaps they did on Saturday against Sheffield United. They showed exactly what what they can do. They were well-disciplined. They got away with a few things, but I think that's to, that's to be expected. I mean, Man United, you, you shouldn't overlook them, by the way. What a fantastic win, win in PSG. And that almost dictates the group now because I think winning away like that actually really sends out a marker Equally, I think Liverpool would have to take it like that as well because I think Ajax away, arguably, is, is going to be the toughest game in the group and they've won it, same for Man United, And I think then Liverpool with and then coming to Anfield this week, that's a game you'd expect them to win. And then all of a sudden you've got six points on the board and Jurgen Klopp would probably feel, well, I'm halfway there in what is going to be a challenging few weeks simply because I do think you immediately notice... The presence of Virgil van Dijk. I think van Dijk is so influential, not just in defence, but also as a calming influence on the rest of the team. When he gets the ball, you can almost feel the pressure ease out of the game, and it's it's a lovely feeling, and it must be one of great reassurance for Jurgen Klopp. So, however he paints it about sort of you know giving youth a chance, giving a, a next generation a chance, he'll know that that's a huge miss for Liverpool. But I just feel that you know Liverpool were far from their best on Saturday, for example, against Sheffield United. But I, I still think they got the job done. And anyone is kidding themselves if they think this is going to be a normal season when I think Liverpool are faultless and run away with it again. That's just not the overall season. But what a start I think for their Champions League campaign. By the way, how good is it to have the Champions League back? It feels really good. Yeah, tell me about it. Tell me about
2: it. And I suppose, Glenn, you know, as John alluded to there you know the aim is to tie up the group as soon as possible looking further ahead into the season into the meat of the season if you like is the key to Liverpool's challenge going to be what they do to replace Van Dyke in the January window now that will obviously play into their strengths because recruitment is a strength of theirs but how key is that do you think well that's
0: obviously a very significant but it's also keeping everybody else fit as well I mean It's good for them to have Alison Becker back, for example. I mean, I think that if you're going to lose Van Dijk, at least you've got Alison back, and that will add to the composure around the back. And they've got one or two other key players as well. But yes, as you say, recruitment is one of the great strengths. I'm sure they'll have a long list of players, even... You know, the what-if scenario, so they would have identified quite quickly who they might want. But it is quite difficult to bring in players in January. As we all know, you know, the good players, clubs don't want them to let them leave. And also players, if they haven't got experience, you know, it's much harder to settle into a season halfway through a season. If they haven't got experience of playing in England, for example, I mean, looking back, I mean, I remember when Vidic and Everett turned up at Manchester United in mid-season. They were, they were poor. They turned out to be two absolutely outstanding players for the club. But so it is very difficult, that mid-season stuff. So, Be interested to see how the experiment with um, Fabinho playing there goes on. And obviously, if you get um, a tip fit, that would help. But yes, the recruitment is going to be quite key. It's how they get to January.
2: Yeah, you're a veteran of of many a transfer deal, John. I found it really interesting that that Liverpool reacted so quickly and almost harshly when they were linked with the Schalke defender, uh, Ozan Tabak, the, the Turkey international You know, they blamed an exuberant agent and a desperate club. Does that feel a bit familiar to you? You know, as I said, you've you've been through the you've you've been around the block with a few of these transfers. Yeah, yeah, I
1: I do. And, And then equally, I do think that Liverpool sometimes can be incredibly aggressive about if they see something that, that that they think is pretty obvious, a pretty obvious kind of piece of work from, from the agent and not much interest there. So, you know, don't put that behind them. Although the, I do remember a couple of transfers where perhaps it was flatly denied and yet still went on to happen. And so I, 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 but I do think sometimes they think, well, that one's not for us. That's definitely not ours, and that's someone else driving it. And they can be quite brutal. Jürgen Klopp is quite outspoken on on, on these things. I mean, they, you know, the one that I I think they've been linked with as well is Upamecano, isn't it? At, at RB Leipzig, and I think he's he's a hell of a player. I must say, you know, obviously the best of Europe have looked there, found it difficult so far. But I think the one thing that that Liverpool probably won't. And bear in mind, Mike, I also think that you know you could make a strong case for them signing a, a centre-half last summer, even before the Van Dyke transfer. Because after all, they let Dejan Lovren go. I mean, it's easy to speak afterwards, isn't it? But that now possibly, arguably looks like a bit of a mistake, simply because it leaves them a little bit light. But I think the one aspect that they've got to look out for is... Is that they you need to make a long term signing. It has to be a strategy. Liverpool so, have been so good in the transfer market and they've always bought for the long term. They mustn't go in as a panic buy by someone who's not quite of their level, reduce the level of the squad and then be stuck with quite a significant signing. That's the sort of mistakes that they've made in the past, certainly not in the last sort of five years or so generally. So I think that they. Arguably, I think if if results and and leaky performances continue, then I think they will probably have to look in the the January market. That's not an area where they would like to go. But I do think that you can easily justify this one by saying that we probably needed to strengthen anyway. They're the young players coming through. I haven't quite made it. Let's see if they can step up. Klopp has publicly backed them. To make that step up, but ultimately, I do think they'll go spending.
0: It's interesting, though. I mean, this is something that we've only had relatively few years, I suppose. Back in the old days, they were simply going out and bought someone already. You know, we've got. I've just a look. They've got Liverpool a minimum of fourteen fixtures until the January transfer window actually opens. So, one of the things that the January transfer window, well, the transfer window system does do, coaches have to coach. You know, we know Klopp is a good coach. You know, Klopp coaches have to coach. They have to find a way to adapt to the fact they've lost a key player, maybe improve the players they've got on the training ground. And that's not easy when you've got so many matches coming thick and fast to actually get that training ground work under, underway. I mean, you could argue Manchester City lost the title last year, partly because of Liverpool's brilliance, but also because they weren't able to cope with losing Laporte. Yeah, and Guardiola, there does seem to be a bit of a blind spot defensively to an extent, with his teams, certainly with this City team. And Liverpool, therefore, this is a test of Klopp. Yeah, that's 14 fixtures. That's a lot of fixtures to cope without, but arguably, your key player. So they have to find a way to do it before the window opens.
2: Yeah, and, you know, if you look at it, Glenn, yeah, we rightly praised Liverpool for their recruitment. Look further forward in that team. What about the impact of Diego Jota? Should we now be talking about a fab four rather than the fab three that we've always been wittering on around for about two years
0: well it's interesting isn't it I mean he has given them with his versatility a little bit of uh, cover in those areas you know because he can play in a variety of positions and already he's popping up with goals which is a huge bonus and you know, that's a good start always was a player quite quickly if you get a few goals as well so we're in this situation whereby I guess it's where fitting him in. They played a slightly different system to start with on Saturday to get him in. Be interesting to see how that goes and how that affects the fluidity of the the three we've seen so far. But yeah, it's a good sign. I mean, that was an interesting signing when they bought him. You're thinking, well, where's he going to fit in? It looks at the moment he's adding to the Fab Three rather than replacing any of them. Mm.
2: John, Manchester City, as Glenn alluded to, there they, they did have their problems last season. Do they feel a little bit flat to you at the moment? Yes, they do. I thought actually that Steve Wilson
1: from the BBC came up with a, with a great line at the weekend. He said that they're basically Man City at the moment look like a Manchester City tribute act. They look a bit <laughs> like Manchester City. They sound a bit like Manchester City, but they're not quite Manchester City. And I thought that was spot That's on, brilliant. to be honest. Because, I mean, it's just... Yeah, they're not far away... Please don't get me wrong. I mean, they're, they're a Sterling one on one. They're a Cancelo tr- trying to control the ball and squaring it away from winning at West Ham. But equally, they're not quite right. They haven't got the same hunger and, 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 and chase and the same fluidity that they've had in recent seasons. I mean, last season was a higgledy pickledy roller coaster ride when they hit some heights and lost far, far too many games in a title race, which became embarrassingly one-sided for them. But this is supposed to be the season that, that Pep Guardiola takes them back to where they were in their you know, back-to-back title winning campaigns, when they were absolutely untouchable, when Guardiola was a genius, when when we all thought this is the future of football. And funny how things change, isn't it? And I'm just not convinced by some of the new new signings yet, in that I think individually they've been decent. But have they got enough? And Diaz and Ake, have they strengthened the defensive unit enough? Did they do enough in midfield? I would say arguably not. They're still so reliant on a increasingly unreliable Sergio Aguero. And I only mean that from an injury perspective, because he's the deadly player that if it was fully fit and fully sharp, I would argue they'd probably go and win at West Ham on Saturday. But another injury, another concern just seems such a familiar story for City right now. The next generation is supposed to be coming through, particularly Foden, who I think is is just a phenomenal player. I mean, it's funny, I've, I've been sort of asked to, as a journalist, put forward this sort of, for, for the Golden Boy Award, nominate my best five young midfielders, and I had to have Foden in there because I think he's that good. I think, you know, if we're talking about the, the footballers of tomorrow, then Foden's in there. But and, and he made a difference on Saturday, that's clear. But Is that difference enough? I just can't see City winning the Premier League title. Well, if they can't win the Premier League title, are they strong enough, particularly defensively, to go and do something in Europe? I'm not convinced that they are this season. City worry me, and I wonder whether this is a crossroads for Guardiola. I hope not. He's brought so much to the Premier League, but I expected to see them go again, and I've yet to be convinced that they will.
2: Yeah, you know, they've got a a tricky tie on Tuesday night in Marseille. Glenn, you know, my perception of it is that Guardiola is still struggling to find the balance of that defence, you know, tried Cancelo. There is still a void at left-back. To your earlier point, actually, is this really when we should start to understand why everyone says Guardiola is one of the great coaches of the modern game?
0: Well, it's gonna kind of be interesting to see. I mean, one of the elements of City's play, and indeed you could argue Liverpool's extent and most good teams in the current era, is that a lot of it, you know, the quick one-touch pass in the movement, that fluidity, that requires a lot of confidence in, um, in, you, in yourself as a player and also in your teammates. You know, that, that fluidity, that motion to be going. So when you start getting a, bit, a couple of off-results... Sometimes that slight pause, where you're considering, is this the right decision? You just you have to be slightly off with your timing to suddenly the whole thing starts to break down. And also without the ball, a slightly different tag. That pressing, that very, very quick press it as soon as you lose possession ball, that requires a huge amount of appetite and hunger and everyone has to go together. I mean, Clock referred to this after the Villa game. Yeah, you know, as soon as one player doesn't go, you leave a hole for them to play out and you've got half your team committed. It's not easy to keep that hunger going season after season after season. It's very high intensity when you've started winning things. So there, there, there's two elements there with and about the ball to keep that going. And to an extent to keep that going, you do need to freshen up your players, you know, to bring new guys in all the time. I mean... You could argue City's recruitment hasn't been on a level with Liverpool's. And I mean, he's got about seven, seven and a half there. Uh, yeah, he doesn't seem to have found the right combination yet. Unusually for a top club, they've rotated fullbacks a lot under Guardiola. That's partly because of high demands that have been placed upon them in terms of physicality. But you're never sure you know, who's going to play in which fullback position. Whereas you look at Liverpool, you know it's always going to be Alexander Arnold and Robertson, for example. So the best teams tend not to change the defence very much and it's it's unusual in the fact how much rotation there is in the defense and partly i guess that's the demands they put on them in terms of physically but it does make it harder to get that understanding between teams and it's going to be interesting now to see you know, there is this question about guardiola as a defensive coach you know can he stop them conceding whilst you know still getting them playing a brilliant attacking football
2: yeah one point that i think does deserve a, a, a bit more scrutiny. You know, I, I tend to agree with Guardiola when he's basically saying, look, there's too much football and something's got to give here. You know, do you have some sympathy with that view, John? Yeah, I do. I think we've got to look for, for deeper reasons and it's
1: something that fascinated me because I think you know, Man City, let's be honest here, are one of the clubs most affected because their summer went into what we normally class as this season with the Champions League campaign. I think it was very, very difficult. I thought it was really interesting that the clubs were so desperate to get back to training and get back into preparation for games for Project Restart. Well, Man City returned nearly a week later than some of their Premier League rivals. Why? Because I think they always identified the Champions League campaign as, as as crucial and yet they had this, they completed the job against Real Madrid and then had an unhappy time obviously against Leon, when I for one expected them to go so much further in the competition and it was just a frustration for them and frankly... I asked Frank Lampard about this, why are we seeing perhaps teams getting these crazy results? Why are we seeing these sort of kind of unpredictability of results and and performances last week? And I think it counts for for all the teams. He identified that that for Chelsea, it was disrupted summer, disrupted pre-season. They brought new players in. Well, they haven't had a chance to work with those players. Again, that's the same, I think, for Man City. And he also brought up on the point that, that basically a lot of the new players won 't have time to to bed in, but also fatigue and fitness levels this season I think are going to be completely different, and I think it's going to be such a challenge I think you'll get so many muscle strain injuries, so many fatigue injuries you've already seen that i think with 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 city it is going to be the most bizarre season ever now look we we could call it madcap, we could enjoy it, and I think we probably will because it will carry on producing crazy results i will be amazed if anyone can be as consistent as, as Liverpool this season. I can't see that. But equally, I don't know whether it's going to help teams who had that disrupted summer, like a Man City or a Chelsea, get really to where they want to be this season. So I do have a great deal of sympathy with Guardiola, but we shouldn't get away from the fact that someone's going to win the league. Someone's going to win the major trophies. Man City still expect that to be Guardiola. And I think Gualiola still expects that of himself, so at the moment, I think he's finding excuses to to reason why city are not at that level, because in any other ordinary season, surely if you invest that much in in new defenders, you want a new defense, and yet it feels very familiar, very vulnerable, and you know good individuals are still good individuals but they haven't been blended in I don't think to to any decent level. Mm.
2: We are going to have a a strange season. I think that's we well, certainly a distinctive season, Glenn. You can only look at it. This is the first time in Premier League history that every club has lost at least one of its first six games. Let's look at that in the context of Chelsea and Manchester United and which, you know, what let's be honest was a a real bore draw. Do you expect more caution, which I think probably defined that match? Do you expect more caution as the season develops?
0: Well, I think this weekend was the correction to uh, what we've had so, so far. The first few weekends, lots of goals flying in. I mean, that wasn't the only dull game this weekend. Most of the games on, um, well, I can't call it free-to-air, but on uh, most, most of the games I saw on television this weekend were fairly dull after a lot of very exciting games, and I think, you know, most managers will look at a 3-3 free free draw and instead of thinking, oh, brilliant, we're playing fantastic, wonderful attacking football, we'll think, how do we let in free goals? That's got to stop. And then you get the short blanket syndrome where, okay, so you... Maybe tell your fullbacks not to push on quite so much. Maybe bring in another city midfielder and you stop the goals going in, but you stop scoring them as well. Because you stop creating so many chances. And most managers will think, great, we've stopped the goals. Now we need to start thinking about how we score a goal. And that, of course, so Chelsea, Frank Lampard stopped conceding goals, two near draws, but of course, they haven't scored either. You know, Solskjaer will think after the 6 1 against Spurs, this is obviously progress. But again, you've, you've now got to find ways to score goals. So, But this weekend, I think, was the correction, and it wasn't just those two teams. The question is where we go next. There will be a certain amount of settling down, but you know, as John said, with this very cramped, congestive fixture list, particularly for the best teams, it's quite difficult for managers to get that time on the training ground that you need to drill a defence to get them organised, to get them all covering each other and so on. So I think that we will see... I think we still will see quite a few surprising results, but maybe managers for a while will be a bit more cautious. Managers tend to feel that if they're conceding high-scoring games, suggest they haven't got control. No manager likes to give the impression that he hasn't got control of what's going on.
2: Yeah, well, Frank Lampard, it seems, John, is still, you know, like several managers trying to discover the best balance of his, his squad. There looks to be a, a key group game in Krasnodar midweek. You know, the Russian team, they drew in Wren in the first round of fixtures. They lost 3-1 at home to Spartak Moscow at the weekend. That's a heck of a trip, isn't it? And is that the sort of journey that could have a, a knock-on effect? Yes, absolutely. The,
1: the, the, this is the game that I'm talking about in that I think it's one thing to play at Stamford Bridge on a Tuesday night and then go for a difficult away game at Manchester at Manchester United. And I think it's another thing to to... Have a long trip midweek, a potential what earlier hours return with a four-hour flight home. I hear people talking about luxury private jets, and sure enough, that that will be the you know mode of travel, uh, I'm sure. But it's still a long journey. It's still a disruptive week. It it must feel, and then back into the Premier League, of course, the weekend, and and it must feel so frustrating for Lampard, who I think. The first time he's had all six new signings on the pitch was against Sevilla last Tuesday because of injuries, because of various reasons, and yet it still feels like he's probably not had any time to work with them. You're going game to game, you get no time in, the, in on the training pitch. It's still taken. I mean, Thiago Silva, by the way, I think he's had two really good games, particularly at Man United. He probably feels as if he's still bedding, bedding in. But they signed him to be, the, to be that leader. He's showing that, those leadership skills. But for others, I mean, Zayic is Zay, such a good player. And yet, we, we're still not quite sure where he's going to fit in. Same goes for Kai Havertz, because he, he's such a noticeable player, isn't he? Because he's so tall. And yet, I watched that game at, at, at Old Trafford. And I'm thinking, where, where is he playing? What, you know, what is, what is he exactly? Because in the more classical sense, you'd probably pigeonhole them as a centre forward. And, and these are the sort of things that I just think if a manager wants to bring in those sort of players and blend a team, quite apart from the fatigue levels, you're just not getting the time to work with them. You're going game to game. You're working on shape two days before a game to set up against the opposition. And then you're playing that game. Then you're coming home, and then you've got to go for the next game, and and it, that is why I don't. I just don't think at the moment you're going to get really fantastic levels because even at the end of this crazy madcap run of games, obviously you've got back to back games in the in the Champions League and Europa League, and you know as I alluded to before, it's a brilliant watch. I love it, and it's fantastic to have it back. But it must be very difficult equally to balance it for the managers, and who probably want to rest and rotate, which again, I think probably brings us on to on to the point that perhaps you're not going to find that consistency if you're changing and needing to change the team that much.
2: Yeah, I said we've we still got to work out whether three at the back works for Chelsea. What about Manchester United, Glenn? They've had a good week, but they haven't won any of their first three home games, which I think is the first time since 1972-73 season. What do you think about their chances of progress deep into the Champions League and what about the threat that is represented by Red Bull Leipzig on Wednesday?
0: Well I think mean, Leipzig are going to give them a good, good test I mean obviously they were semi-finals last year and I, I, I mean whilst it was a brilliant result in Paris I mean a bit like the home record I and mean, you know I wouldn't read necessarily too much into that in some respects because this season of all seasons with no fans I don't think home advantage really means anything. I mean you get you get better changing facilities, He's not changing the car park at Goodison Park, for example. Or I know it's AFC <laughs> Wimbledon were changing the corridor at Burton at the weekend. But if you look at the Premier League this year, forty-five percent of the matches have been away wins, thirty-four percent have been home wins. Yeah. You know, I don't think there is any real necessary home advantage this season in particular. That those those peers were in a home crowd would help to lift aside, or indeed maybe just slightly influence a referee. That's not happening. So yeah, they haven't got a great home record, but if you're playing well away, it's less of an issue. I mean, I suppose you could argue Southampton last year had a better away record than home record, and it's not that unusual, but this year, quite a lot of teams. So that home and away thing, I think, is less of an issue, but it also means that the win in Paris maybe means may slightly less, because obviously, Paris could easily win at Old Trafford. There, is, there are signs that Solskjaer seems to be better at setting up his teams when they're counter attacking and they've got a lot of pace up front, and when the next teams are coming onto them which makes it slightly different when you're at home and you're expected to make the running even without fans in the ground. So I think we look at a situation whereby it's going to be quite difficult. But if you can get out of that group, you know, then who knows? You know, the best team doesn't always win the Champions League. The best team normally wins the league, but it doesn't always win the Champions League. You know, I think that's that's That line i see. seen Assa Wenger said the other day when... um, we're looking at one of those you've been cup finals recently where when he came out as said well the best team doesn't always win obviously Arsenal didn't win but he's right in some respects cup competitions once you can get into the knockout stages cup competitions this year of all years you yeah, you could progress I mean there is certainly talent in that Manchester United side particularly going forward
1: just picking up on one, one point that Glenn made, I, I should throw into the mix then, when we're looking for for examples and reasons as to, as to why we're getting this inconsistency in Madcap results. I mean, Solskjaer at the weekend, didn't he, sort of pointed to the fact, if only we'd had a full Stretford end, basically, we would have won against Chelsea. I mean, immediately post-match, he was talking about the ball being sucked in, but he was actually making a wider point post-match. He was making a point that basically the crowd roars us on, which I think is such a good, such a big point maybe that's sort of a little bit of sour grapes from Selski are 0-0 but I do think it's a valid reason that's why going to Glenn's point you're not getting home advantage so much is that I do think when when you go when you are 1-0 up when you do go sort of kind of 2-1 ahead That's when you expect the crowd to really get behind you, to sort of change the game, set the mood. That's what I think we get sometimes in... in, That's why I love Champions League nights quite so much. I think the the crowd sometimes set the tempo and set the atmosphere and that basically they can sort of set the mood. And I think we miss the crowd so much on many, many levels. But in setting the tempo and creating that atmosphere and giving that home advantage... I think it's something that the bigger clubs in particular, I think are missing so much this season. The
0: one I really thought, well, Goodison, when that Liverpool goal was disallowed and Everton was trying to push, yeah, the, the place would have been going absolutely mental Yeah, in the old days, yeah, with a yeah. crowd there. I mean, because Goodison really is rocking when it's like that. In you know, that particular match, you can imagine what it'd been like in the last few minutes. And certainly games of Goodison where it feels like the crowd almost do suck the ball in.
2: Yeah, and, and on that sort of broader point, you know, I don't want to appear pessimistic about this, but when you look at the the government stance on, on it. Can you see, in all honesty, f- fans being allowed into grounds before next year? I hate to say it, but I, I don't think I can, even though there are a huge number of of ridiculous inconsistencies where you can watch a game now at a stadium, but you've got to keep the curtains drawn so you can't see what's going on outside. It's a nonsense, but... Are we going to have to still keep watching football and seeing and football being played in this vacuum?
0: I think it's become political now that the government does not want to be seen to giving in to let football fans go and watch matches. I, I can't see any logical reason if you're allowed in cinemas and theatres and you know to watch matches in pubs and so on that you can't go in grounds where. Clubs are used to stewarding. They're used to testing. You know, they're used to tracing people. They're used to keep everyone's names, and addresses, and so on. It's outdoors, yeah, you know, and particularly lower division grounds. And why you can't get say two thousand people in a ten thousand seat. There's not even a, an issue there with traveling to and from the venue. I think it's become a political thing now. You know, there's a there's lack of understanding of football at the top levels and lack of, you know, football fans all scummy oiks. Uh, plus, that they've made so many U turns, they don't want to turn on this one.
1: Mike, I feel really passionately about this, in that basically I do think it's it's a nigh and impossible sell at the moment to try and convince people to uh, in amongst growing infection rate and very difficult setup, and I have to say I think we reach a point where I'm thinking has football got it wrong, or has that cinema showing the game got it wrong, and that's that's the first point. And please don't get me wrong here; I'm the most passionate person about getting fans back in, but I. The, Football frustration comes by because of those inconsistencies and and that's such a, you know, difficult place to be. But what is it that, that makes the government stand by those inconsistencies that that's what frustrates me i mean i've done a few stories on this in, in that basically some of the efl clubs particularly in the championship have tried to do beanbags so they're away from home and they're shown to fans corporate fans in in the hospitality areas obviously paying for the privilege to go but it's a, it's almost about more about showing that we can do it now back in the back end of last week I know that, you know, those championship clubs were thinking, well, our events will be cancelled because DCMS are getting involved. And basically, even though you can go down the road at the cinema, you won't be able to go in our hospitality areas. Well, I think a little bit of pressure there from the EFL and beyond saw to it that they survived last weekend. And so you were able to do it. But I wonder how much even that will last Longer, and that just seems so wrong to me. It also feels wrong that you can have crowds up to six hundred in in non-league, and, and yet you can't in League One, League Two, where when crowds never been more so important for them. What is the reasoning behind that? BT Sport is showing a, an FA Cup tie, St Albans v Bishop, Bishop Stortford Monday night, and that will have fans in. And I think that's a great you know indicator, and I hope hopefully, people will tune in and say actually, do you know what? We can get fans in. So it's the inc- inconsistencies amid such a difficult time to convince people that amid rising rates of everything at the moment, that, that basically football fans should be a- allowed back in. But honestly, we've got to get rid of this skewed nature that is is haunting football and, and causing so much angst about the game's hierarchy, really.
0: Well, the irony is, just on that point, that game will only have fans in because Bishop Stortford um, are able to sh- allow fans in. If it had been drawn with an Albans at home, it wouldn't have fans in because they're a National League club. Mm. I mean, that's the lunacy of
2: it. Well, it does make that point, doesn't it? And I suppose, Glenn, I'll apologise in advance for another thorny issue, but VAR. There's yet another easy decision. Maguire going full WWE on Azpilicueta on Saturday at Old Trafford. That was missed. VAR, is the issue really that it transfers... Incompetence from the pitch to Stockley Park. Simply too many poor officials.
0: One thing I would say about that, uh, Martin Atkinson can't see it. He's, his angle is very similar to the cameras. If you look at the main camera angle, he simply can't see it. Maguire's used his left arm and where he, he looks perfectly normal. The linesman's blocked by body, so I can understand. Only Aspilaquator and Werner briefly complain about it and the play moves on. And there's another incident on the, on the edge of the box where Zuma goes down that people look at at as well. So and then the, the game moves on. I, I can perfectly understand why the officials on the pitch do not see it. In terms of Stockley Park, I do wonder: are they actually look without much appealing going on? Without the referee saying, "I think that might happen there," do they look at that immediately? Are they looking at every corner from every angle? Or once, yeah, you know, the TV cameras have had a chance to have a bit more time and then call up the replay? And of course, the TV replay we saw. Is absolutely perfect, you can see what he's doing then. But at what point do you call play back? You know, by then the ball's gone down the other end, it's been playing for a minute or so, it may have gone out of play already. In which case, it's you know, it's because it we've moved on. So I can see that particular circumstance why the officials on the pitch didn't give it. And there is a point where play just goes on and on. I think that is difficult. Do we demand perfection from all the all the officials? I mean, plasma mistake all the time.
1: Yeah, I, th- I think there's a degree of tribalism here as well. There's a couple of other incidents, quite apart from the guar one. Fabinho, for example, that, that, that tackle which ultimately gave away a penalty. And people on social media get so wrapped up in it, in that basically, oh the VAR didn't look to see whether it was even a even a foul as compared to where it was. Well, actually, if you look at the guidelines, if you look at the, the laws and, and and the rules actually governing VAR, that, that wasn't supposed to be the job. It's supposed to be about a clear and obvious error. Well, the debate for VAR was whether it was inside or outside the box. So for all the screams and angst, which I understand you're gonna get passionate about your team, but also partly it's fueled by by journalists on Twitter, in that basically <laughs> it's just wrong information. I, I you know, I, I I bothered to go and have a have a look at the sort of the, the, the VAR debrief and you know, i might maybe more sympathetic than most. I mean, I was appalled by some of the recent decisions. Obviously, the Pickford and Van Dijk has been the big one. They got it wrong. They just didn't adhere to 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 the guidelines. But then I looked at the Lacazette goal for Arsenal, or not, obviously as the case may be against Leicester, and with the naked eye, I'm thinking, well, that's that that can't stand because Jack in the way. He's in the goalkeeper's eye line. He's offside. And and again, people are going crazy. Well, actually, if you look at it and 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 you check. That that's the reason why it's been disallowed, and I think that's perfectly valid, really. And and yes, there's going to be there's going to be mistakes, as Glen points out. You, I also think that the equipment's only ever going to be as good as the people running it. We cannot move away from VR, and I just think we have to improve it. One obvious way I think of improving it is improving the the people operating it. Set up regular teams so there's a team understanding. Perhaps use recently retired officials, good officials, to operate the VAR. I mean, Neil Swarbrick is is the main man in charge of VAR. I I don't think he was ever considered as one of the Premier League's, say, top three officials. But as soon as he started operating the VAR, he shone. They thought, oh, well, actually, he's really, really good on VAR, so let's get him in to oversee it. Well, that made so much common sense, but why not do it for other sort of recently retired ones that have a good understanding authority that won't be afraid to challenge a more senior referee who's officiating the game, like, you know, you could argue with Coote and sort of Oliver going back to that incident, or or indeed something with Martin Atkinson at the weekend. And I just think there are ways, subtle ways of improving it to a great degree.
2: Yeah, you know, let's wrap up the sort of Champions League chat if we could. Glenn, let's look across Europe Briefly, uh, Bayern, who are at uh, Locomotive Moscow on Tuesday. You know, I said right at the in- intro probably favourites and probably justifiably so. You've got Lewandowski, 10 goals in five Bundesliga games. The only cloud on the horizon is probably that ankle ligament injury sustained by Alfonso Davis on Saturday. How good do you think Bayern are? Of course, you know, they're coming in as holders, aren't they?
0: Well, they're, they're looking tremendous at the moment, aren't they? They still seem to have a lot of hunger and drive, which is sometimes difficult when you won everything last year to keep it going this season, and Lewandowski's... Been absolutely outstanding. I mean, I think he scored more goals than all but a couple of other teams in the in the Bundesliga. No one <laughs> other players, and they do look favourites. Um, obviously, losing Davis would be a blow, but they've got a very strong squad. A lot, quite a lot of depth. Not quite as much depth at left back as a right back, but they have got a lot of depth. They have got a good strong squad, and uh, no one else is looking that good as well. Yeah, you know, as you mentioned, yeah, you know, the, the Spanish giants aren't looking so good. Our sides have all got issues about them. I mean, Bayern seem to be the only team of the the big major European teams that have gone from last season. Don't forget, they played right to the very last day, straight into this season, with barely a pause for breath. I mean, I suppose you could argue they had a slightly bit of break because the Bundesliga finished earlier, but they had to keep in training, they had to keep going. But it's a long, old season. Who knows what it's going to be like come March, come April. I mean, they do tend to romp through the Bundesliga but those games aren't that easy. I mean, everyone still works pretty hard, so it's a long, old season. Um, let's see where we are come come March. Mm.
2: Where do you expect to see Barcelona, John, at that stage? You know, obviously they got Juventus on Wednesday, so stand by for your Cristiano Ronaldo, Messi hype. Um <laughs> And actually, you know, when we talk about Messi, now no goals or assists in the last seven games against Real Madrid. Do you read anything into that?
1: I read a lot into to everything with Messi this season. Mike, to be <laughs> honest. I mean, it's such an unhappy marriage now, isn't it? I mean, you know, we're, we're clinging on, I think, to the fantasy that that Messi will suddenly turn it around and, and basically fall back in love with Barcelona because we love Barcelona and more than the club and everything that goes with that. Well... Messi unfortunately has lampooned that 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 myth basically blown blown up the, the, the bubble of hype really because Messi has fallen out, out of love you know he's, you couldn't have it more publicly shown than that and i, I the only thing i wor- worry about Messi is that this season obviously let's see how it pans out can they persuade him to stay in the longer term to repair the damage that has been done but i just think that he's on a wider point, let alone his record in, in, in classicos is that basically he's, is he going to be the player best player in the world again? Because I think sometimes when you allow yourself to drop, when you do have a salt, when you do have that drop in form, you can quickly, it can quickly unravel. I think for, for a major player, even a player, an absolute God on the pitch, as Lionel Messi, and I think that Barcelona should be should be worried about it because the team and the squad at the moment is in such poor shape that they just cannot expect Messi to carry them single handedly like this. I just go through it, and where is it going with 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 Barcelona? They're so average, they are so average. It's a strange sort of setup. I mean, I looked at looked at Real Madrid. I mean, they're losing their first game in the in the Champions League, and and yet they're still far, far superior to to, to Barcelona. And, uh, yeah, it's it. Th- there was a time, wasn't it? Barcelona felt like this when Guardiola took charge, what, what we're talking about, four, you know, 14, 15 years ago now. And and, and basically, he, 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 it, it was a point in time. And I just feel that the Barcelona are at a crossroads now. They've just not blended in their new signings, like de Jong, for example, and then but they've not moved on. They were hoping this would be a new generation. Well... It's just the worst Barcelona team that I can I can remember. It really is. It's such in poor shape, and they've looked for so many years to Messi to to rescue them. And at the moment, he's not in a place I don't think to be miracle worker again.
2: Yeah, it's interesting looking at the Madrid clubs, Glenn, You've got Real Madrid, as John said, they lost their first opening game. They therefore can't really afford another defeat this time to uh, Munch and Gladbach. You've also got. Almost a changing of the guard at Atletico. Uh, is Simeone, do you think, in danger staying too long there? And they look a bit vulnerable, don't they? Certainly, they're playing um, Salzburg um, this week.
0: They do, yes. I mean, I suppose every man who can overstay their welcome eventually. But I mean, he's been tremendous. He's such a dominant person at the club I and mean, it's a bit like Wenger at Arsenal almost to I me mean, yeah. where would you go after Simeone I mean it's, it's a huge step for you know for, to, to make that change if you're actually running the club he's been offered, obviously been offered other possibilities elsewhere but they, they're paying you know, very handsomely he's been quite successful there so it's difficult to see whether I mean I guess you give his record time it is early in the season all you need is you know, get that front two going that rather Tasty front too, going. I mean, it could easily turn around. I mean, they don't look certainly as bad as Barcelona. I mean, looking at the table. I mean, look at the table. If they win their games in hand, they go top actually in Spain. So I mean, it's not all doom and gloom for Atletico by any means. And Real, I suppose, it's almost like as long as they're above Barcelona, they're going to be spared too much criticism at home. Yeah, you know, the, the weekend victory will will give them a bit of cover for a while.
2: Mm. What about Europa League, John? You were at Arsenal last night. You know, got a nice little romantic tie against Dundalk late this week. What about in practical terms? Did that defeat by Leicester tell you anything about the state of play under Mikel Arteta?
1: Yeah, I think it was a very, very sobering defeat. I think that both teams were, were on nine points, three wins going into into the game. And I think whoever stepped forward, I think, could, could say that they've made a really good, impressive start to the season. Whoever lost basically now thinking, hmm, well, it's not so good after all. Arsenal have lost three games in the Premier League already this season. Listen, they've lost to Liverpool, Man City and Leicester. So very good opponents. Although I would argue that, that Arsenal, with the summer spending and the ambition of the club, they wanted to bridge that gap to those sorts of clubs. Well, those defeats highlight the fact that there's still some way behind them. And I think the, the, the problems still remain somewhat. David Lewis went going off was, was quite a big moment for them defensively. I mean, just rewind that for a moment. David Luiz going off is a defensive <laughs> blow. I mean, that's how it is. You know, Mustafi came on. He's clearly not completely up to speed yet. And his revival has been truly impressive un, under Arteta. But he was, when the race was on, he was found wanting basically on the breakaway goal They have yet to find the right balance. And I just thought Arteta was trying to be too clever by half. I don't know where Xhaka exactly was playing. Because if you wanted to set up as a 4-3-3, I thought this was the moment to unleash Xhaka, Thomas Partey and Ceballos' midfield trio. And then that was supposed to be strong enough so that you can play a back four rather than having to play a back three, which I don't think long-term Arteta wants to do. And then also... That attacking range is quite interesting. Saka, I thought, was really lively and he, he's had good games against Leicester in the past. So I think that's why he's picked. Lacazette is struggling for confidence. I mean, he's also is struggling for, for for courage, frankly, in, in trying to sort of put his head in where it hurts to score with that driven cross from Tierney. The, the bigger aspect for me is now five Premier League games without a goal for Aubameyang. Now, that's a positive drought and he looks like a player who is playing in a drought. Yes, I know he's pl- you know playing scored in, in 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 the um Europa League, but he does look as if he's just slightly off it at the moment. And it's seriously bad timing because at times last season Aubameyang's goals could rescue a a bad losing situation for Arsenal. Arsenal just not clinical enough. They, they had so much more possession and so many more shots than Leicester. But Leicester taught them about being ruthless and being really effective and efficient. And I, I still think there's st- still a lot of work for Arteta to do.
0: John, John Tim Stillman, who, who, you know, obviously Arsenal specialist, he was making the point that he feels that Aubameyang, Lacazette and Pepe are three players who are basically unsuited for pl- to play with each other. But Arsenal spent a lot of money on all of them and therefore are trying to make it work. Whereas a bigger club, were. another club uh, with, more, with bigger resources might just get rid of one or two of them.
1: Yeah, I, do, I think it's a very interesting point. I, I, Pepe is is a really, really. I mean, he's such a frustrating player. There's glimpses of real quality there in his delivery. Sometimes when he dribbles, it looks like he's he's got the ball glued to his feet, and he'll beat two men and then and basically trip over his own feet or the ball, <laughs> trying to go go around the third man. There's a player there without a shadow of a doubt. But I think, as you rightly say, you know, as Tim t- touches on, does the dynamic work. Because Lacazette is, a, I think, a good, a good a really good player and a really good hold-up player. But he's he's not playing with any confidence. You are, I think, compromising to a degree Aubameyang by constantly putting him out wide and doing a job for the team. And I think Aubameyang, you just have to get back in the short term to playing him through the middle and then maybe seeing if Pepe and Saka might work and, and just giving Lacazette some time out the firing line. I just think you need to change it up. You need to find a better dynamic because Aubameyang wide and Lacazette through the middle, it's worked on occasion. It has worked in the past, but I'm still not sure about it. And it still feels a bit frustrating. Your most dangerous and dynamic player, Aubameyang, is out wide, stuck out wide, trying to put in crosses and trying to track back. I, I don't think that's that's the right solution.
2: Yeah, I do think, though, what we need to do is give Leicester some credit, don't yep. we, here, mm-hmm. Glenn? And also specifically probably Brendan Rodgers where – you know that he he did a number on Arsenal last night. You know they're away at AEK low in the week. Um, Jamie Vardy six away goals this season already. Should Leicester be getting more credit for what they're doing?
0: Probably yes. It's the usual syndrome, isn't it? I mean, yeah. There's always there's always more focus on the quotes bigger name. So if Arsenal lose to Leicester, the attention is going to be more on Arsenal than it will be on Leicester, and that's been the complaint of supporters of um, more moderate. Clubs for, for time immemorial. It's always a big teams. Always a story with the win or lose. Yeah, I mean Leicester have become a very good outfit. They've lost. You would say, you know, big, big players for them. Can't tell you before that, you know, you drink water, um, you know, and obviously Maguire, and they seem to be able to replace them seamlessly. they got, they talking about Liverpool, you know, Leicester have really got very good recruitment department. And Rodgers is a very, very smart manager. Sometimes he gets a little bit carried away. makes it a bit too complicated, but he's a very good manager. He's tactically very good. He's still relatively young. I mean, we're looking at a guy who could be managing for at least another 10, 15 years. And yeah, it's very good performance by Leicester. But they once again will be up there
2: yeah we're talking about managers glenn you know your area of specific expertise women's the women's football the international the friendly England in Germany was cancelled yesterday due to coronavirus how big a blow is that and i suppose in a broader sense does it call into question the wisdom of international football or certainly friendly matches
0: yeah england Lionesses have a specific problem in that they're hosting the next euros therefore they they have no competitive fixtures so they either play friendly fixtures or they basically don't play there is an argument however when you've got a manager who we know will be leaving before the euros and will be placed next summer given his replacement Serena Wegman a whole year with the players why are we playing these friendlies because yeah, they're not really going to affect selection that much for the Euros when we finally get round to hosting them. You know, in an era of coronavirus where travel between countries is obviously a bit tricky. I mean, the problem this time, I think one of the backroom staff had corona, uh, had a positive test and they were a bit concerned that if they got to Germany and someone tested positive, they'd, they'd all be quarantined in Germany for two weeks, which obviously would have been less than ideal, especially with Manchester City, who've got 11 players in the squad. So you could argue. There's not a massive amount of financial money riding on these matches like there is with the England men's team where the FA do need them to play to keep the whole show going at the grassroots level and so on. So you could argue, I'm not quite sure why these friendlies are necessarily needed. They haven't played since March. They've got one more game. If he goes ahead in December, then they probably won't play again until next March. So it's a, it's a long time to be without a game. But they've had a couple of camps where they uh, do training and in internal matches. And in terms of ticking it over and keeping things going, that's probably as valuable as anything at the moment.
2: Yeah, when does this leave Phil Neville, do you think, John, a really unworthy thought here? But is Paul Skulls keeping the sh- seat warm for him at Salford? An option, <laughs> couldn't he, <it>, really? <laughs> I mean, me, Phil. Yeah, he was probably arguably
1: going into the safest job then. Can you imagine one, one one of the other guys trying to sack Phil Neville on the back of bad, yeah, bad, I think three bad results? Today, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. Look, I never think this works. I just don't think it we, that you know that the manager is going. You know that someone else they've appointed a successor even. It's, it's, it's that clear. These things just never work. You, of course you will see a falling off of results because you're seeing a falling off of authority because you're no longer as a player determined to go out and give everything to impress that manager who's in the hot seat. And, you know, people might turn around and say, oh, you're kind of questioning his ability to motivate and his professionalism." Well, frankly, I am actually, yeah. Because I, d- I just don't think it. you're lamed up, basically, aren't you? You're just biding time. And it just, th- this game, which I have to say, feels like a, a, a huge story, frankly. This is England going to Germany. A huge moment for the, for, for the national team, being called off for coronavirus and... And yet, actually, it just feels we're in this in this weird place where with, with the team, because of everything surrounding the future of the game, the future of the manager, that it's almost like, oh, okay, kind of got to get on with that, and that 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 doesn't feel right to me. Should be sort of building up a momentum here. I mean, I must say, sort of on a wider point, I think it's a, you know it's a big story. Bearing in mind, you know, we've got the FA Cup final coming up. Will it impact the clubs and and, and players domestically? They've got to now hope then that basically everyone's, everyone, all the players have tested negative, haven't they? But they've got to hope then. obviously that's that continues to be the case. It, it, it's a worrying time, I think, and it feels like we're losing time and we're losing momentum because we're just treading water and we will be treading water for for what, a year, 18 months? And that doesn't feel right to me, not at all.
0: I think on Neville, I think he has higher ambitions than Salford, I suspect. And, and Paul Scholes, of course, has his own management ambitions. He might be—he went into Oldham, didn't he, at a similar level. So he might be quite happy to keep going there.
1: But Glenn, do you think Do you think that, that even though that Phil Neville's got those ambitions, is he going to get that opportunity? It'll be really interesting because I, I always look at the analogy of, uh, for example, Neil Lennon, perhaps first time around, does he get the opportunity for, from managing one of the big clubs in, in, in Scotland in the Premier League? I don't think he does. I think he gets it at a championship level. I wonder what being uh, semi-successful manager of the England women's team does for you in the men's game, where what level that is. And I'm not sure that it's in any way Premier League.
0: No, I, I agree. I'd be very surprised if you got a Premier League job. I mean, it, we're looking at something to do with the Manchester United Connection rather than the England women's. Job, I suspect in terms of where he ends up next, but um, yeah, we'll be interested in what does happen with him actually.
2: Yeah, well, let's you know, I I want to end on on a Manchester United connection. Marcus Rashford, I think we can all agree his campaign has been inspirational. You've got Raheem Sterling setting up a foundation to help disadvantaged children. You've got Leeds players in the club giving fifty thousand pounds to Rashford's campaign. Fans. From right across the board, Newcastle, Leeds, Liverpool, Everton, Man United, Man City, Arsenal, Spurs, Brighton, Palace, Villa, Sheffield United, Burnley, et al. Donating to food banks instead of buying pay-per-view. Now, in my view, there's a lot to be concerned about in the modern game. Look at it. The exclusion from fans, from grounds that we've talked about. Poor leadership from the football authorities. And the greed of the biggest clubs. But in adversity, I think we've found inspiration. We should celebrate the fact that our players are standing up for what they believe in. Their activism isn't some cheap PR stunt. It's genuine, effective and making a difference. Now, as we've discussed, the fans are following their lead. I don't know about you, but there's a lot to be positive about. A lot of people to be proud of. If you'd like to share your views, please go ahead. Now, in the meantime, thanks to John and Glenn and to you for joining us here on the Football Writers Podcast.